welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. And on today's show, we're taking a look at misdemeanors, a major component of our criminal justice system that's rife with inequality. 13 million misdemeanors are filed each year, often for minor crimes, jaywalking or trespass. The accused get caught in a system that traps the innocent and punishes the poor. Alexandra Natapoff writes about it in Punishment Without Crime. Her book served as the inspiration for the new documentary from Brave New Films, Racially Charged. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. Well, you've said that the biggest misconception about misdemeanors is that they are minor crimes, but on paper, they look like minor crimes, and yet they have absolutely enormous consequences. And to put this into context, when we think of names like Michael Brown, George Floyd, we think of them being murdered at the hands of police, but they were caught up in this misdemeanor system. Michael Brown was accused of jaywalking. There are two reasons why misdemeanors are not minor at all. The first is systemic. Sometimes as as attorneys, we define a misdemeanor as a crime for which you can serve no more than one year. That's the technical legal definition on paper, but it's a misleading definition. What misdemeanors really are is an enormous net of potential criminalization that permits the state to mark us as criminal, to uh, incarcerate us, to punish us based on the most minor of conduct. Uh, You mentioned jaywalking, spitting, loitering, trespassing. These are the kinds of offenses that populate the misdemeanor system and yet permit the state to treat us as criminals. As you mentioned, uh, that it is the net that opens the door to the kinds of violent police encounters that we saw in Ferguson, that we saw um, in Minneapolis. The second reason that misdemeanors are not minor is because of the terrible effects that they can have on an individual, on their life trajectory, on their economic prospects, on their families and communities, what we sometimes call the collateral consequences of misdemeanors. In other words, not the punishment that is uh, contained in the court order, which itself might be quite weighty, but all the other terrible things that happen to people, they lose their jobs, they're evicted, they lose their immigration status, they may lose child custody. Uh, their credit is ruined because of fines and fees. Uh, People's lives are derailed by all the additional burdens that accrue from an encounter with the misdemeanor system. To, you know, further expand on the point that you make there, that it's a systemic part of our criminal justice system that particularly targets and victimizes poor people, but particularly people of color. And in the new documentary, uh, Racially Charged, it's described as a mechanism of social control. And what it does is it gives police officers enormous discretion in who they can target and what kind of punishment can be meted out. So we, we talk there about about jaywalking, spitting. You know, how do police have such discretion when it comes to this? And the fact that it's disproportionately impacting people of color. So say, for example, in New York City, 89% of uh, jaywalking tickets are given to black and brown people. So when you have this enormous discretion in a system that is already skewed to target people of color, that this then escalates. So the misdemeanor system is particularly impactful on those people of color as well. We haven't spent a lot of time uh, as a community uh, thinking about misdemeanors. We have sort of written them off as petty and minor and chump change, 
But in fact, it's the vast majority of what our criminal system does. 80% of all criminal cases filed in this country are misdemeanors. This is how most people will encounter the criminal system in this country. As a result, studying misdemeanors tells us profound things and deepens our understanding about profound characteristics of our criminal system that are sometimes most visible in the misdemeanor space. So you mentioned the term discretion. The American criminal system is, is um, famously discretionary. Police have enormous discretion about who to arrest um, and for what. Prosecutors have enormous discretion about who to charge with what crimes and what kinds of plea bargains to negotiate. This discretion is at its height in the misdemeanor system, which is to say in the vast majority of cases that our misdemeanor system processes. And so as a result, the racial biases, uh, the, um, the wealth stripping tendencies, the pressure on poor people and people of color in the criminal system are themselves magnified in the misdemeanor system because of the discretion, because of the scope of that net and because it lends itself uh, so readily to so many purposes other than uh, public safety. This has historic roots and the documentary traces it back to the era of, of Reconstruction and uh, post-Civil War when laws were created that specifically were aimed at controlling Black people, where they could be. And this is like vagrancy or loitering. And those laws extend to 2022 and are still present in the misdemeanor system. Jaywalking, loitering. Talk a little bit about that and how the deep roots of these laws are actually around controlling Black people and their place in society. So there's a chapter in the book called History, and it's about that historical arc of the ways that the misdemeanor system has been used. Uh, after the Civil War, uh, after emancipation, Southern states redeployed their misdemeanor system, as it were, uh, to create the opportunities effectively to re-enslave African-Americans. They created a vast array of low-level offenses. You mentioned vagrancy, loitering, spitting, trespassing, um, walking along a, a railway track and then local law enforcement deployed those minor offenses to round up African-Americans, to charge them with crime, with those low-level crimes, to charge them fees, fines and fees that they could not pay. And then as punishment, I've been put punishment in scare quotes, they were punished by being farmed out to the very industries that they had just been freed from. So plantations, factories, minds to, as it were, work off their punishment. Uh, and so this history of using misdemeanors as essentially a revenue and labor extraction mechanism goes all the way back hundreds of years, but we still see it today. We still see it in low level courts where the courts themselves, uh, the offices that depend on the court, even the cities themselves in which those courts are located are heavily dependent on the revenue stream from those low-level courts. Indeed, this was the great and terrible revelation of the Ferguson report issued by the Department of Justice, where it revealed that the Ferguson City Council and the police department were all uh, ratcheting up misdemeanor enforcement to fund the court, to fund the city. And in fact, 
billions of dollars are generated. And as you said there, that report around Ferguson highlighted that. But this is happening in thousands of municipalities around the country. I think an estimated $6 billion are raised annually through traffic stops alone. So let's talk a little bit about this, because you, you really detail this in your book, Punishment Without Crime, about the fact that not only is the discretionary nature of how misdemeanors are enforced, essentially, how the police enforce these, but then how the people who are caught up in this system are further targeted by this web of fines, but also the fees that are imposed. Talk a little bit about how the, it can escalate so somebody can end up with tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt to pay off a misdemeanor. So let's take three steps back for a moment. There are three ways of understanding the impact of running so much of our misdemeanor system this way. We've been talking about one central one, race. It has an impact on racial justice and racial inequality in this country, deep, deep impact. The second that we're uh, discussing now is money. You can't understand the misdemeanor system without understanding the role of that revenue stream in incentivizing criminal justice institutions, essentially to turn the criminal system into a regressive tax mechanism. And the third, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about, is innocence, that this enormous sloppy machinery of misdemeanor criminalization wrongfully convicts hundreds of thousands of people every year, sweeps them into the net, even though they haven't done anything wrong, fails to pay attention to the evidence, and pressures people into pleading guilty. So that, that from 30,000 feet, our misdemeanor system, this 80% of our criminal system is distorting our ability to um, to convict people in an accurate way. It's distorting the, the meaning and the significance and the value of our criminal system by turning it into a revenue generating taxation mechanism. And it's distorting the um, uh, racial equality in our country by doubling down on race discrimination as a way of perpetuating those divisions. When people are caught up in this web, and, and you've written about this because your own experience, now you're a professor of law at Harvard University, but you have a background in the system, having been a former uh, public defender. So you've seen firsthand the pressures that are put on people who were caught up in this. You know, you talked about the innocence aspect of that. So what are the pressures that are put upon people to plead guilty or to plead no contest, which is essentially you know, the admission of guilt or it has the same consequences? What did you see when you were a public defender about this system and those pressures that are put on people? So one of the key characteristics of the American criminal system is that it is almost entirely a system of pleas. We almost never go to trial in this country. 95% of all the convictions in the United States are the result of a plea. This is true of the felony system as well as the misdemeanor system, but it's so large and fast and sloppy in the misdemeanor system that it naturally generates wrongful convictions. You ask me why, why do people plead guilty in the misdemeanor system? There are a number of reasons. So first and foremost, many people who are swept up in the misdemeanor net are incarcerated on bail, meaning the court sets an amount of money that they have to pay as a security, as it will, as a guarantee that they'll come back to court. Um, and the majority of people cannot afford that money, so they languish in jail while, while their cases are pending. And at the end, typically in the misdemeanor system, they'll receive an offer. If you plead guilty today, 
you can go home with probation and a fine. If you plead guilty today, your punishment will be time served. In other words, the, the, the week, the weeks that you have already spent in prison, uh, in jail, excuse me. And many people take that deal. They go home to take care of their children. They go home to preserve their job. They go home to make sure they're not evicted. And so the pressures of incarceration and bail uh, uh, generate, as it were, misdemeanor convictions in the form of guilty pleas, regardless of whether people um, may or may not be guilty of the underlying offense. And the idea that the system just does not serve poor people and, and people of color, people of color who are targeted and are ensnared in this web, this net, essentially. I mean, from your experience as a public defender, how much time would you even have with somebody? How much interaction would you even have with somebody to be able to really faithfully represent them when you were in front of a judge? And that often is just a few minutes to even talk about the case. Our criminal system has one consistent response to, to unfairness and to, the, um, and to leveling the playing field. We say you have the right to counsel. That's how we address the risks of wrongful conviction. That's how we address the risks of the violation of the Bill of Rights. And that's how we address the risks um, that uh, poor people, people without resources or education cannot defend themselves meaningfully in court. We also famously underfund the public defense bar. And this is especially true in the misdemeanor system. I should note this was not my personal experience because I worked in a very small niche arena of the criminal system, which is the federal system. I was a federal public defender, which meant that I had more resources at my disposal than the average public defender. It meant I had more time to meet with my clients than the average public defender. But the average experience of being a public defense in this country is to be under-resourced and to be overwhelmed by a caseload, particularly in the misdemeanor space where we know that, uh, that public defenders may have hundreds, even thousands of cases assigned to them because the offices have so few resources. And re always remember that net is so enormous that cases are coming in so thick and so fast. And as a result, uh, even well-meaning, um, committed public defenders literally lack the resources to represent their clients in the ways that our Constitution guarantees. And I should mention that there's very interesting litigation all around the country now challenging that phenomenon, challenging the overburdening of misdemeanor public defense, because we understand that it means that no one's really getting the right to counsel, even if a lawyer actually shows up, and challenging um, the burden that we put on the on that all-important defence bar. You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. Our guest is Alexandra Natapoff. Her book on the misdemeanor system, Punishment Without Crime, served as the inspiration for the new documentary from Brave New Films, Racially Charged. You can catch that at Free Speech TV. Find out more at freespeech.org. Do you think now that we have a Supreme Court justice who herself was a, for, was a public defender, so has that life experience the first time ever, do you think that's going to make any difference in our overall system? I think adding new voices and experiences and um, perspectives always makes a difference. Sometimes that is the central difference uh, in criminal law because so much of how we run our criminal system depends on what we think is acceptable what we think is normal. Uh, 
I, I think it's going to make an enormous and wonderful difference to have Justice Jackson on the court on so many fronts, um, but also especially uh, in the space of having um, of having that voice. And the way we understand justice, the way we understand uh, what is a crime, I think is really at the heart of the matter of the misdemeanor problem. So often, uh, when pe after I wrote the book and when pe people would talk to me about it, they say, how do we treat all this conduct as criminal? These are not criminals, they're not scary, they're not dangerous, they're not harmful. Um, this isn't what we mean when we say criminal justice. And I think to the extent that we are able to change our minds and change our perspectives about what we really want our criminal system to do, what work are we willing to authorize this enormous arm of the state to perform, uh, then we will see that shrinking the misdemeanor net, that uh, removing it from the criminal space, calling all these people criminals and treating them as if they have done something harmful or wrong uh, or dangerous is an enormous mistake. Now, that's not to say that there are not some serious offenses that we do treat uh, do treat as misdemeanors. If you think about domestic violence, for example, uh, or uh, driving under the influence. We do use the misdemeanor system to sweep in conduct that may be harmful, that may have victims. Um, but the vast majority of the system is not doing that work. And we need to rethink whether any of that work should be criminal in the first place. We've been having broader conversations as a society since the murder of George Floyd uh, around this issue of funding the police and, of course, defund the police. But when we put into context the billions of dollars that are raised through the misdemeanor system and how so many municipalities are actually relying on their public funding, you know, as a result of this money, how is this being framed as part of the defund the police conversation? Is it, is it a separate conversation? What are your thoughts on that? So one of the challenges in thinking about misdemeanors is that we have not historically understood the misdemeanor system as a whole. That We've been aware of the problems and the dysfunctions of specific pieces, stop and frisk, racial profiling, fines and fees, bail, the problems of public defense. Uh, but we have not historically thought of all these issues and problems in conversation. What does bail have to do with fines and fees? And what does that have to do with racial profiling? And what does that have to do with our underfunded public defense bar? And so one of the, um, wonderful developments, I think, uh, in the past few years is that we have started to ask those questions. And the murder of George Floyd and the deaths of Michael Brown and Philando Castile and Eric Garner, all of whom, as you mentioned at the outset, were stopped for misdemeanors. The police were exercising their misdemeanor authority to initiate those encounters in the first place. And the more we understand how devastating those encounters can be, of course, in the most terrible circumstances uh, of police violence, but also the imposition, the, the fear, the intrusion that hundreds of thousands of people experience every year by being stopped and frisked and touched by a police officer all over their bodies, the intrusion, the fear, and, um, uh, and the distress that that causes. We are starting to understand that is part of this larger story of misdemeanors, that we authorize the state 
based on the most minor conduct to intrude into our lives, our privacy, our liberty, our physical integrity based on very low standards of conduct. And that is what we need to rethink. Let's talk a little bit more about the devastating consequences of having a misdemeanor on your record. And bear in mind what we've talked about is that it has very often little to do with guilt or innocence because of the pressures to plead guilty when you're caught up in this whole web. But if you do have a misdemeanor on your record, this could have huge implications for housing, for finding a job for child custody for a whole enormous slew of of issues and that could stick with you through the rest of your life and plunge you either even further into poverty or into poverty if you weren't there in the first place because of the fines and the fees and then your inability to potentially find a job talk a little bit about that because this is really what's impacting hundreds of thousands of people every year so we can understand the misdemeanor system in part as a regressive taxation mechanism. The, the state is reaching into communities to strip people of their wealth in order to fund the criminal system that is itself um, engaging in these, uh, engaging in this form of governance. But we can also understand the misdemeanor system as you describe as this, uh, what this imposition of these enormous crushing burdens on hundreds of thousands of people based again on such minor and low level conduct and concentrated based on race, based on wealth, based on neighborhood. And so sometimes I, I, I like to describe the misdemeanor system as a kind of reverse welfare state. It is taking from the needy, it is taking from the vulnerable with one hand precisely the benefits that we struggle so hard to provide to them uh, with the welfare system itself. So on the one hand, our welfare system provides um, funding for people with disabilities or the elderly or, or food stamps or um, other resources for people who are struggling economically. And then the misdemeanor system on the very same front takes away those very resources, both through fines and fees, but also through disqualifying people for those very um, resources in the first place. So it's a terribly um, uh, ironic and sub, uh, I want to say subterranean public policy that we're undoing with one hand what we struggle so hard to do with the other. And I, I don't think we can really understand the significance of our criminal system as a whole without understanding that 80% of these cases are threatening people with economic dysfunction with the inability to engage um, engage their, their communities and their civic institutions in this way based on such a low-level minor justification. Well, in the last few minutes that we have, I mean, we have seen some changes, some of it as a result of COVID-19. I mean, we talked about the change in, in our attitudes as a society around criminal justice because of the murder of George Floyd and the countless others. Um, but also when COVID-19 happened, there were many, many municipalities that did discharge or release people who were imprisoned in their jail system for misdemeanor charges because of the threat of COVID. Now, thousands of people who were imprisoned actually died as a result of COVID, but many others were released. And so we saw that this can actually happen. You don't have to imprison people 
for misdemeanors? I mean, is that something that you think will carry on or what are some of the other changes that could be made to really tackle this system? You know, so we, we struggled with COVID as a nation. We struggled with the murder of George Floyd as a nation. The criminal system changes slowly. <laughs> it, is, it takes a long time for that ship to adjust course. And I'm heartened by the developments that you mentioned that many municipalities did take the opportunity uh, to literally to spare people's lives by releasing them from jail. Uh, as you also point out, many municipalities did not and many people got sick and many people died needlessly on, again, misdemeanor, minor, low-level conduct. And I think that what COVID and what these past few years of Black Lives Matter uh, have most profoundly revealed to us is just how powerful and often dysfunctional the, uh, the governance decisions that our criminal system makes that we permit people to languish in jail for low-level conduct that we don't uh, we, that we don't think would be appropriate to punish them with incarceration. We lock people up because they can't afford to pay fines and fees based on their poverty, not on their culpability. Uh, our jails are so overcrowded and so um, misunderstood that we permitted people to languish in jail and get sick based on very minor conduct during the during this pandemic. And so the emergencies, our national emergencies, our community emergencies, so often intersect with the misdemeanor system because the misdemeanor system is quietly uh, under the table in a way doing so much work that we have not given it its full attention and we have not given its full uh given it its full share of blame. I know many communities have started their own bail funds. I mean, through people, concerned folks in the community where you can donate to a fund to release people who are caught up in this system who can't afford to pay their bond or their bail to, to at least get them out from incarceration. I mean, there is a, a somewhat of a grassroots movement, but what can people do as, as we finish up, Alexandra? What, what are some of the steps that people can concretely do to address this issue, particularly as some much if it's playing out at a municipality level. So I'm glad you asked that question because so much of this is depressing, <laughs> but there are um, very hopeful signs of change and opportunity for change. So you mentioned bail funds, court watching, uh, the new round of progressive-minded prosecutors, many of whom have run on the platform of reducing the misdemeanor net, of declining misdemeanor offenses. We are seeing pushback against uh, uh, crimes of poverty, like driving on a suspended license, both through litigation, but also through legislation. In other words, we are finally starting to engage this enormous aspect of our criminal system in, in a meaningful way. And you ask, what can individual people do? Of course, you can um, find out who the municipal court judge is in your jurisdiction. Uh, you could run for a municipal court judge. You could talk to your city council about the policies that your local court, um, your, your local court is following. Ferguson City ran the Ferguson Court. It wasn't the state of Missouri. The local individuals have access uh, in some sometimes 
a better access to the decision makers in our local criminal system and our low-level courts than they do to our higher levels of the state judiciary. Uh, people can become educated about just how minor these offenses are. Employers can understand that if someone who applies for a job has a misdemeanor conviction on their record, the chances that it is garbage is high. It may represent nothing more than the chances that they might get arrested uh, for some low-level offense and couldn't afford to pay bail. So I think as we collectively understand the true significance of the misdemeanor system, uh, we can collectively push back against this idea that we should be using criminal law to mark people and burden them and punish them and keep them out of our economic institutions based on these kinds of offenses. Alexandra, thank you so much for being our guest today on Just Solutions. Thank you so much for having me. Alexandra Natapoff's book, Punishment Without Crime, served as the inspiration for the new Brave New Films documentary called Racially Charged. It's screening right now on Free Speech TV and you can find out more and catch past episodes of this show at freespeech.org. For Just Solutions, I'm Maeve Conran. <laughs>